0: In this episode of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies podcast, we will hear a talk from Greg Cochran of the California Baptist University. This talk was given at an event held by the Center on September 14th, 2015, called Martyrdom in the Early Church, Reality and Fiction. The paper is titled Perspective on Persecution, Matthew's Gospel and the Challenge to Martyrology. I want to um, just approach this subject much more broadly. If you'll indulge me. I think this will be encouraging and offer a different perspective for us to consider. According to the end of Matthew's gospel, Christ left his followers with a mandate to make disciples of all nations. If one interprets the Great Commission in light of what has gone before in the gospel, say in chapter 4, verse 23, chapter 9, verse 35, and chapter 24, verse 14, then he may well conclude that the disciple-making process is fueled by Christian proclamation. The proclamation of the gospel is to be, as Leon Morris says, in no minor way but to all the nations. This preaching to all nations in order to make disciples of them is, of course, the drive of many evangelistic organizations, including the International Congress for World Evangelization, a gathering of evangelical leaders from more than 150 nations. This Congress, more commonly called the Lausanne Congress, places the Great Commission passage at the beginning of its original covenant under the first heading titled, The Purposes of God. The Lausanne Congress recognizes that the task of preaching the gospel to all nations is no simple task. Not all nations are amenable to the spread of the good news. The Christian drive for proclamation to all nations, contrasted with the resistance of those nations, led the Lausanne Congress to call for a more thorough study of Christian persecution. So, for instance, in section 1 -1 of the 2004 occasional paper on persecution, there's enumerated concerns which have been raised repeatedly since the first meeting of Lausanne in 1974, yet still remain to be dealt with more extensively. The first issue mentioned in the bulleted list of that occasional paper is, quote, The relationship between human suffering in general, suffering for Christ's sake, and Christ's own suffering. The Lausanne Congress has recognized the need for distinguishing what it means to suffer for Christ's sake from what it means to suffer on account of oppression or from other frailties of the human condition. The Lausanne Occasional Paper on Persecution concludes Section 4 with this call for theological research. There is clearly a need for deeper theological reflection on the issues pertaining to suffering, persecution, martyrdom, religious freedom, and human rights, and an appropriate Christian response. Not coincidentally, in Matthew's Gospel, the commission to make all disciples of all nations occurs at the very end of the document. Before that commission is given, indeed, in the very first discourse from Jesus in the gospel, the Lord instructed his followers to expect suffering on account of him. Matthew five ten to 12 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we shall see, Christ knew from the beginning what Lausanne and other disciple-makers would later learn. The world is not always eager to acquiesce to the authority of Christ. Persecution will come. Lausanne is also wise to separate their conversation into distinct categories, suffering, persecution, Martyrdom, religious freedom, human rights. If we're serious about asking questions of the scriptures in order to clarify what it means to suffer for Christ's sake, then we too need to offer clear categorical distinctions. The distinction I have in mind this evening calls for a focus on persecution rather than on martyrdom. On deocology rather than martyrology in order to understand what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. So we'll first work on clarifying the distinction between deocology and martyrology or persecution and martyrdom. Then we'll turn our attention to understanding from Matthew 5, 10 to 12, a little bit at least of what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. Speaking about suffering from the perspective of persecution differs intentionally from a martyrological outlook which tends to prevail academically on the question of suffering for Christ's sake. The martyrological paradigm focuses on martyrdom, that is, asking whether this or that Christian died as a martyr. Questions of martyrology arise and are the basis of exploration in works such as J.S. Povey's Persecution and Martyrdom in the Theology of Paul. Pobe seems to assume that the contextual community determines the confines of theology rather than assuming that theology fundamentally determines the shape of the community. As a result, the greater portion of his persecution and martyrdom is spent unpacking the contextual community out of which he supposes Christianity developed, namely, a Judaism shaped by the intertestament period of the Maccabees. For Pobe, the Maccabean martyrs define the New Testament parameters for understanding persecution. Dr. Williams did a great job of demonstrating how there are other trends that are more significant such as Judaism and Christ's own atoning word, but that's an aside. Like Poby, many of those writing from the martyrology perspective are asking contextually how Christian martyrology developed. So, for instance, WHC Friend argues in Martyrdom and Persecution, a study of conflict from Maccabees to Donatus, that the early Christians developed their theology of martyrdom by literally adopting the concepts borrowed from Judaism. Similarly, Droga and Tabor argue for a contextual development in relation to the Roman concept of noble death. Seeley likewise argues along the lines of a noble death tradition. But against these developmental contextual approaches, one might read G.W. Bowersock's Martyrdom in Rome, in which he argues that Christian martyrdom developed as something new out of the context of an urbanized Roman culture. As Bowersock says, quote, martyrdom, as we understand it, was conceived and devised in response to complex social, religious, and political pressures and the date and circumstances of its making are still the subject of lively debate," close quote. While the debate over the development of Christian martyrology is still alive, against the more straightforward arguments for a one-to-one connection between Christian martyrdom and, say, Judaism or the Maccabean heroes or Roman noble deaths, is Paul Middleton, who argues for a kind of, quote, all of the above, approach, stating that the early Christians did inherit Judaism's outlook on suffering and death, along with a necessary contrast to and simultaneous accommodation of certain elements in Roman culture. Middleton maintains that a degree of development is to be expected from the surrounding context, but he further demonstrates that Christian martyrdom is, in fact, Christian, unique in its own sense. So. Middleton resets the question from asking about which stream it was that gave birth to Christian martyrdom to asking instead about what unique contribution Christian martyrdom offers to the different streams out of which it arose. At the conclusion of the matter, Middleton ends with his own reaffirmation of a kind of developmental contextualism saying, Martyrology as with all Christian theology developed within a constellation of cross-cultural ideas. Some it adopted or absorbed while others were actively opposed," close quote. In contrast to these approaches, deacology asks present tense questions. Is this experience persecution rather than past tense questions, did the Christian church adopt a Roman hero view of martyrdom, or did this particular Christian die as a martyr? Though these latter questions are significant, as one may see in the debate concerning whether Dietrich Bonhoeffer may rightly be called a martyr, still there are significant questions which are better answered from a deocological perspective. Deocological, I should have told you, comes from the Greek dioko, which is the primary key wor- uh, word in the New Testament for uh, pursuing, persecuting. As both Lausanne, and the Sermon on the Mount remind us suffering persecution is offering a pres- offer often a present tense reality for those preaching the gospel to all nations. Indeed, in Craig Slane's book, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer as Martyr, Christians are urged to action as a direct result of understanding martyrdom. It is a weakness of that book, however, that martyrdom is used as the interpretive grid for an ethical response to persecution considering that one is typically not appraised a martyr until after the fact of his death. The concern, as Lausanne points out, is what it means to suffer for Christ's sake, not what it means to die as a martyr. So an underlying principle in learning from the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to suffer for Christ's sake, is that not all of this suffering is martyrdom. Thus, questions ought to be approached from a perspective of persecution, rather than from martyrdom. The Sermon on the Mount speaks of suffering for Christ's sake in the present tense action of persecution. Beyond this shift of perspective toward persecution, the Sermon on the Mount also provides a stable structure which can help shape a theology of persecution. If one wishes, as Lausanne prescribes, to mine the scriptures for instructional gold on the topic of suffering for Christ's sake, He would have a hard time discovering a richer vein to explore than the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has intrigued ethical minds from Augustine to Gandhi, from St. Thomas Aquinas to Martin Luther King Jr. Perhaps Bowman's line is a bit hyperbolic, but he states flatly, the Sermon on the Mount is the most important and most controversial biblical text. Hopefully, leaving aside the controversy, we'll explore the instructions offered by Jesus on the topic of persecution, briefly in Matthew five ten 10-12. In this passage, the progression is twofold. Kingship with Jesus is presently at hand with the preaching of this king, yet the future of those who follow the kingly Christ may include persecution. So the speaker pronouncing the Beatitudes, Christ himself, is speaking with authority concerning the kingdom of heaven and those who are inhabitants of it. Those who follow Christ's teaching may face a future which includes persecution by those not yielding to His authority. The kingdom focus throughout the Beatitudes, then, is tied to the persecution being spoken of in verses 10 to 12. The plain fact of a relationship between kingdom people and persecution is already visible in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. This fact leads naturally to a further consideration of Andre Kojak's claim that this pericope serves as a meta-discursive for the entire sermon. If one accepts the authoritative speaking of Christ concerning the Kingdom of Heaven and the Beatitudes, and if one accepts the notion that the conclusion of the sermon, chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, speaks of contrasting fates for those who respond positively by faith and negatively by unbelief toward Christ, then it's not so hard to see through the lens of persecution a common thread throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The important point for demonstrating the nature of persecution in Matthew, then, is that Christ is born as king and portrayed as preaching the kingdom of heaven. He is pictured throughout the Sermon on the Mount as the one who displays the righteousness of God. Those allied with him possess the eternal kingdom. Those not so aligned receive condemnation. The righteousness of God is displayed in the words and workings of this Jesus. Matthew 6, for instance, in Matthew 6, Christ speaks on behalf of the kingdom and He promises rewards from the Father in heaven. He teaches the disciples to pray to the Father, Thy kingdom come, in 6.10. They are considered already to be members of the kingdom and children of the Father when they are instructed thus to pray. Christ teaches His followers to avoid anxiety by seeking the kingdom and righteousness, in 6.33, again of which they are already partakers. Matthew 7 concludes with allusions to the law, the prophets, and the kingdom, and concludes with Christ teaching the disciples how to make sure they're manifesting kingdom life, even though rain, wind, and floods may come. It's not unreasonable to suppose that the meteorological metaphors are allusions to persecution. If those hearing Christ are citizens of this kingdom, they're building their lives up on the rock, which will stand, presumably, even through persecution. The Christ of Matthew's gospel is a regnal Christ, which means he is pictured as a king reigning in righteousness. Persecution is rooted in this regnal dynamic. With this regnal dynamic in mind, we focus intently now on understanding suffering for Christ's sake. The translation of Heineken Emu, because of me, in Matthew 5.11, demonstrates the regnal righteousness in three ways. First, The use of the personal pronoun emu links the persecution of the kingdom people in verse 10 directly to a personal source. The person at root source in the persecution is neither the persecutor nor the one being persecuted. Rather the root provocateur of persecution is the Christ whose teaching claims the authority of the kingdom of heaven. Blumberg notes, the only persecution that is blessed is that which stems from allegiance to Jesus and living in conformity with his standards. And that statement is almost exactly right, but not quite, only because of the amu of 511. The amu of 511 doesn't put the matter of persecution on allegiance to Christ or conformity to Christ but a personal pronoun that puts the emphasis on Christ himself. The root provocateur of Christian persecution is Christ. Those whose fealty conjoins them to him may be the flowers cut down by the blade of persecution, but their suffering happens on account of him. Otherwise, there may never be a blessing given, considering that all the disciples failed in their allegiance, whether it were Peter rebuking the Lord in 1622 or the entire group faltering in faith in 1720 the promise of persecution does not rest with the certainty of faithful disciples it rests with the certainty of Christ abiding with his followers as he promised in 1820 2531 to 46 and 2820 Christ's presence regnal and righteous will continue to offend official individuals and authorities ensuring the ongoing flow of persecution. Here is plainly seen the weight of Heineken Emu. The personal pronoun in 5.11 indicates that there will be persecution and there will be blessings for God's people. Second, because the person implied in the pronoun is the Christ who teaches with authority, persecution is the result of clashing authorities. In other words, Christ cannot be considered separately from His kingship authority. The authority with which he speaks is authority bound up with the nature of who he is. In Matthew, he is the reigning king. In other words, the of me referred to in the genitive preposition amu is of the son of David, of Emmanuel, God with us, of the king of the Jews, all references to Christ before the reader gets to chapter 5, verse 11. Such references continue to the end of the gospel, which states in unmistakably clear language that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. From the first verse to the last, Christ is a divine, eternal king. Later chapters picture Christ being mocked, in fact, for his claims to kingship. So, if the persecution which the disciples suffer refers back to the person of Christ, then it refers back to the Christ who claims to be sovereign. The person of Christ, presented in Matthew through 5.11, is a royal child, a preaching king, the one who speaks like Moses, as a mouthpiece of God. While it's certainly the case that Matthew's original audience may not have understood all the implications of Christ's claim to kingship, It is also true that the original readers of the gospel had the notion of kingship spelled out plainly from the beginning of the gospel to its post-resurrection end. Christ's abiding authority is central to Matthew's gospel. So third, kind of a culmination of the other two, the phrase Heineken indicates that the persecution of the disciples happens because of their authoritative teacher and king, Jesus Christ. The improper preposition, Heineken, is most commonly translated in Matthew as for the sake of. The slightly varying senses in which the preposition is rendered either for the sake of or because of can be seen in the difference between its usage in verses 10 and verse 11. In verse 10, those are to be congratulated who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, while in verse 11, they are to be congratulated who are persecuted because of Christ. The rendering for the sake of is the outward in verse ten is the outward expression or the fruit of pursuing or putting on display righteousness through obedience to Christ. It is more occasional than causal. One might understand this as faith in action. In verse eleven, the because of refers to the origin or the root cause of the persecution, which is the authoritative Christ. The distinction in view is necessary to see both sides of the persecution equation. On the one hand, the outlook of pursuing righteousness provides the occasion for drawing attention to Christ's followers. On the other hand, the persecution that arises against them originates in the authoritative Christ himself. The distinction between the two is helpful, but even more helpful is their relation. The righteousness belongs to the person who is at root the cause of the persecution. From Matthew 5, 10-12, we see that the occasion of persecution is ultimately precipitated by the presence of Christ and his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is on display through the action of those who by faith offer their allegiance to him. Having been delivered from their allegiances to other powers, the followers of Christ are now allied with the king. The people of the kingdom, quote, are engaged and commanded by Jesus to do what they ought to do. As salt and light, they represent and proclaim the righteousness fulfilled by Jesus, but they do not create it themselves, close quote. The kingdom is his, the righteousness is his. In Matthew five thirteen to 16, the followers are first called light, then commanded to shine. They're not told to shine in order to become light. The disciples are first called to Christ in 419, then given instructions for obedience. The nature of the obedience demonstrates the righteous authority of Christ, not the authority or righteousness specifically of His followers. In this view of Matthew 5, 10-12, persecution exists as a retaliatory action against the Christ of regnal righteousness. What has been referred to until now as persecution is shown to include hounding as well as slander in verse 11. The nature of the aggression is evidenced by the use of the preposition kata, here employed to indicate hostility against. Though the violence of slander is not equal, perhaps, to that reached today in Chinese prisons, still, the aggression in view is equated with persecution. As Alfred Plummer said over a century ago, the cruelties of the arena are in abeyance, but reviling clamor, and slanderous statements are still frequent, and those who suffer from them should remember these verses. Quote. Slanderous statements and false accusations are persecution of the same essence as beating, imprisonment, and execution, certainly not to the same degree. Persecution, then, is any retaliatory action against the righteousness of God as displayed in Christ whether that action is name-calling or flogging. Plummer makes the additional point that those presently suffering are offered comfort in Matthew 5.11. The blessing abides for Jesus' followers whenever, hotan, the persecution happens. The subordinating conjunction, hotan, is in one sense temporal, could be translated as often as, but it doesn't have to be because whenever covers the same temporal generality. The privilege of blessing holds whenever the persecution happens. The delimitation indicated in Matthew 5.11 is in another sense, though, not temporal. Rather, it's personal. The blessing is promised whenever in time it happens, but the limit of the blessing is reached when the suffering is not Heineken Amu, not on account of me. Only suffering for Christ's sake is privileged with the kingdom blessing. Only suffering occasioned by the manifestation of righteousness on account of the authority of Christ is in view in Matthew 5, 10 through 11. The essential character of persecution then is regnal. It has to do with Christ reigning. It has to do with Christ and his righteousness. The regnal righteousness of Christ in Matthew provides the following definition for persecution. Christian persecution is a hostile, retaliatory action against Christ directed toward the followers of Christ, who by faith represent and proclaim the righteousness of God. Because Christ is sovereign, this manifestation will often include conflict with authorities that hold captive most of humanity through fear and rebellion. Yet, God is vindicated through the triumph of Christ as a result Righteousness is a primary theme related to Christ and those persecuted on account of him. Righteousness is clearly the picture in view in Matthew twenty-three twenty-nine, where woe is pronounced against the Pharisees because of the hypocrisy of adorning the monuments of the righteous. Matthew inserts that the blood of Abel and Zechariah is righteous blood, and the blood of righteous Abel is just a part of all the righteous blood poured out upon the earth. The thrust of the woeful discourse in Matthew is that upon this generation all the guilt of righteous blood spilled is going to be brought to full account. We might even say there will be a righteous reckoning in which God will be vindicated and the righteous separated into his presence forever, which is what Jesus says in twenty-five, Matthew 25. So to sum it all up, bring these two points into focus. Christ possesses authority over heaven and earth. The kingdom is offered freely to those who repent and believe Jesus. Further, righteousness and the speaker himself are synonymous in the language of the Beatitudes. Because righteousness is equated with with Christ, the persecution of the followers may either be for the sake of righteousness in 5.10 or on account of Christ in 5.11. Christ arrives on the scene proclaiming the interjection of the kingdom of God while claiming the divine right to issue proclamations concerning rewards in heaven. Furthermore, Christ asserts divine authority to bring final reckoning to all peoples, both sheep and goats. Such an audacious message sent Christ into the hands of opposing authorities for his crucifixion, and it may bring his followers to a similar fate. Whether his followers share the same fate or a similar fate with regard to persecutions, they are recipients of great reward in heaven on account of Christ. And they will consistently suffer persecution, or at least its threat, while on the earth. If this paper reflects the true teaching of Jesus in Matthew, then Lausanne's need for theological help in the face of persecution is helped in these two ways. First, Lausanne can be aided by our focusing more attention on ethical questions related to the present tense of deocology rather than the past tense of martyrology. Why are Christians suffering? Is this suffering related to the righteousness of God displayed in Christ? If so, then those suffering are blessed. Scholars can help disciple makers around the world by defining suffering in biblical categories related to persecution for Christ's sake. Those whom the world curses can be strengthened by the assurance of Christ's blessing. And second, Lausanne's plea is answered by the framework offered in Matthew to explain suffering for Christ's sake. Specifically, suffering for Christ's sake means suffering on account of Christ himself. In this explanation, the presence of Christ becomes a key factor, both in causing the provocation that leads to persecution and in securing the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. While we may look back through history to learn from the outcome of faithful lives, we should ever keep in mind that even today, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven.